Okay, this morning let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're at least looking and starting with that passage this morning as I continue to look at the Ten Commandments. And if everybody's wondering, I will be probably most likely going to Second Peter after I'm done with the Ten Commandments with a couple messages in between. So Exodus chapter 20 And let us look at our scriptures from verse 1 through verse 15. It says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol of any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. Let's pray. This morning, Lord, as we again look at your word, um, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be ready to just again consider your commandments, for we know, Lord, that your commandments show forth your character and your glory, that you gave your people a a standard of living, something that reflected your will and transmitted it to them. And so I pray, Lord, as we consider uh, the commandments, even, Lord, for our own day, that even though in Christ we are not under its condemnation anymore, But, Lord, we know that it still illuminates sin. It still convicts of that sin and makes it clear. And I pray, Lord, that as we consider the law of God, that we we know, Lord, that it's been fulfilled in Christ. But I pray, Lord, today that we would live in an obedient manner as we submit to the Spirit of God, who gives us the power to live out the truths of Scripture and to live out the communicable attributes of God in our daily life. And so, Lord, bless us with an understanding of this commandment. And I pray this in the Lord Jesus Christ's name today. Amen. So, through the law of God, I discover, you discover, that we are people who find it difficult to let God be God. The law of God does reflect some of the 
character and glory of God. So when you and I look at the law of God, we see that we have fallen short of the glory of God, that we have broken the law of God, that we cannot keep the law of God, therefore we fall under its curse. The law reveals to you and I that we are not good, but actually that we are sinners and rebels against God. See, the law had a temporary function to it. The mediator function of the law was transitory. It has been replaced by something better. And the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So our relationship to the law for those who are believers has changed. We are no longer under this tutor, as it says in Scripture. Now, Scripture insists that the law's old function was as a pedagogy and is no longer necessary. Let me just explain for a minute. A pedagogy was a slave who supervised the life of young children. Those, uh, in other words, they were a tutor. The father of that child gave the pedagogy instructions, and he saw to it, the tutor, that the children carried out those instructions completely. But when the child grew up, he became directly now responsible to the father. No longer did the father relate to the child through this household servant or slave or tutor. The slave was, again, at that point, retired, and his service was no longer needed. See, so the law is like a teacher, a tutor, that brings us to Christ. Once we come to Christ, we no longer need this tutor. As it says in Galatians, also, it says, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. So the whole point of the law was to show sinners that they need Jesus Christ. They need someone to deliver them, to save them, to redeem them. So then Scripture's argument in the book of Galatians is that after Jesus came, and the Holy Spirit was sent into our hearts. The old relationship with the law was superseded by something better. The coming of the Holy Spirit to live within the believer removes the necessity of relating to God through the law. However, setting aside the law's mediating function does not mean God is no longer concerned about righteousness. It simply means that God has a better way of helping believers grow in righteousness. See, believers in Christ learn to live in 
response to the Holy Spirit's inner promptings and leading with the Word of God. That becomes how a Christian grows in Christ, how a Christian becomes righteous. They don't become righteous on their own power. They come become righteous on the power uh, of the Spirit of God, setting them apart, sanctifying them. Just like when we read passages of scriptures like Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the di- desires of the flesh. So, in other words, this passage in Romans is really more pointed as far as you and I are concerned, where it says, so the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we have to ask the question when it comes to the law, what has changed as far as you and I are concerned? Well, let's consider this for a moment. We have the law, and of course the law... uh, is something that we have the believer, the law, we have God, and of course, God gave the law, God spoke the law, and of course, secondly, the law spoke to man, transmitting God's will to man, and then the believer expressed faith in response to the law or in obedience to the law. But, so this would be what would happen in the Old Testament that a person would respond to the law in that way. So they had to go through, in other words, the law to get to the Lord, and of course that would be through the sacrificial system too. But remember, the law always revealed God's moral character. The law always revealed righteousness and goodness. The law always revealed sin and underscored man's need for forgiveness and righteousness. However, the law never showed how one could be saved. It never produced or provided righteousness to the believer. In fact, if one obeyed, they would receive blessing because of obedience. And of course, that was through offering a sacrifice and coming to the Lord, having their sins forgiven. If they did not obey, they would be under a curse. That's what would happen. Now, for those who are believers, who have now the Spirit of God, what has changed? Well, what has changed is that the believer is now related directly to God. Directly to God. So, in other words, it's not we do not go through the law anymore. God, the Holy Spirit, will direct the believer's way and will work his own inner transformation And, of course, God's Spirit will produce in us the Holy Spirit's fruit. That would be the difference. The law was not able to do that because the law's righteousness was not fulfilled yet. The justice of the law was not fulfilled yet. But when Christ came and he became our substitute, he fulfills the law, he satisfies the justice of the Father, and therefore we are now set free from the law's condemnation to do what? To live for Christ. To walk in the Spirit. And that's why you notice, if you haven't noticed this in this passage, it says in Galatians, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. If you ever noticed that 
in that passage is for that reason. There's no set of rules that you and I live by any longer as Christians because we have the Spirit of God. For it goes on to say, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires, and now the Spirit of God has given us new passions and desires. And then it says in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So God now commits himself to work directly in our lives and directly upon what? Our character. The focus shifts from just external behavior in the Old Testament, uh, specifically at least, to the person we become in the new relationship we have in Christ, now having received the Spirit of God. So, in other words, law could never have added anything to the new life a person would receive as a believer in Christ Jesus. Now, that's just a little theology. As I go uh, through the Ten Commandments, just to give you a little bit of update on some, maybe some of the confusion that would come when we consider the Old Testament law and what it means for us today, like it still does convict of sin, it still magnifies the sin that uh, is in our heart, but it no longer can condemn because that condemnation has been taken for us by our Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfills the law, and because we're in Christ, we fulfill the law too. Now, in saying all that, I, uh, I, li I like to watch evangelist Ray Comfort share the gospel on the streets of Santa Monica in Southern California. When he gets to the Eighth Commandment, of course the commandments before that too, but when he gets to the Eighth Commandment, because that's the one I'm focusing on this morning, he sometimes says, have you ever taken something that didn't belong to you regardless of the value? This includes stealing an answer on a test or taking a pen from work or even keeping extra change that you know isn't rightfully your, yours. If you've taken anything that isn't yours, then you are a thief. Then he usually includes a question, does that concern you? And then he goes on to say, and adds usually a comment and a scripture, where he says, do you know no thief can enter the kingdom of God? And he usually uses second, First Corinthians, and he says, or do you not know that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor um, uh, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, or the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so when he says that, he says, by your own admission, you are a blasphemer, liar, thief, adulterer, and so on and so forth at heart. So if you are judged by the Ten Commandments, will you be innocent and guilty? He has a unique way to people for pe get people to say you're guilty. I'm guilty. And uh, he's good at it. He does it every day, but he's good at it. And he takes the law and he applies it to the conscience of a person. And under the judgment of the law, the person has to conclude, you know what, if I stood before God right now, I'm not doing so well. But that's exactly what the law is supposed to do. It's supposed to put us in a place where we have to have something else to save us. 
course, he then will say something like, if God is good and he's a righteous judge, he must punish murderers, liars, and thieves. And God's place of punishment is the prison of hell. I don't want to see you go to hell. I don't want to see you end up in hell. And of course, at that point, he finally will present the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his death in the place of sinners, his shed blood to wash away the sin of an unbeliever and receive forgiveness, and of course, the resurrection unto new life. Uh, and of course, if he says to them, if you turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, he will forgive you of every sin you've ever committed and grant you the gift of eternal life, which is the only way anyone could be saved. So that is a very good way to witness to people, is to take the law and apply it to their conscience, and as they are, it's applied to their conscience, they really cannot wiggle out of it. Uh, they can't run from it. They have to either, if they're really honest, they'll say, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. And so... Of course, the answer is in Christ Jesus. So that's the exciting thing about it. So right in this commandment we're looking at this morning is there's a principle revealed in this commandment, in the Eighth Commandment. And of course, the principle of the Eighth Commandment, which simply says, you shall not steal, is this. It's the responsibility for honesty to be the policy and the practice of God's people. Now, that's, that sounds very simple, doesn't it? This is the policy. It's been the policy of God's people all the way along, but now we have are to put this policy and procedure or practice into uh, our everyday fabric of our everyday by the power of the Spirit of God. By definition, stealing is the act of taking property from another without permission and in secret. Leviticus tells us this, you shall not steal nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. So stealing is surely prevalent in our society among pagans who do not plan with God in their thoughts. And I'm sure there are amongst us former thieves who by the power of the gospel have been transformed into honest persons, even professing Christians have been guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. So the moral law contained in the commandments is as relevant for God's people today as it was in the Old Testament because it still reveals sin. That when we find ourselves to be guilty of Stealing, whatever it may be, or however it may manifest itself, we still come under the guilt of committing or breaking that particular commandment. Now, in Scripture, there are all kinds of thefts that the Bible mentions. As a matter of fact, looking at this passage of Scripture, I, I was overwhelmed by how many places in Scripture it talks about people stealing. I said, well, that, that's interesting, but... It's, it's, it's not surprising because, you know what, we're sinners, right? And that's what sinners do. 
And there's one thing that I think everybody can say, that there's not been a time in my life that I haven't taken something that didn't belong to me. So stealing is a, is a broad subject because there are many things that can be stolen. Stealing material things, possessions and property. Stealing money. In Scripture, it could be stealing livestock or things that are valuable. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 22. Well, you're right there in Exodus 22. Uh, in 20, look at it chapter 22 of Exodus, and I want to read this section to you because it's a big section about being a thief and stealing. Notice what it says in Exodus 22, verse 1 through 9. It says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it and sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck, so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owes nothing, then he shall be sold. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If what he stole is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man lets a field or vineyard be grazed bare and let his animals loose so that it grazes in another man's field, he shall make restitution for the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes, to, the, to that stack, stacked grain or the standing grain or the field itself, it is consumed he who started the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him, and it is stolen from the man's house, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's property. Verse 9, for every breach of trust, whether it is for ox for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, or for any lost thing about which one says that it is that is it, the case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. So in that passage, you see there's a lot of stuff in there about different situations, about people, how people can steal. It's not just, just taking from somebody. It could be very subtle. It could be planned, and it could be just ignorance, ignoring your own stuff that gets into other people's stuff. Of course, we have other words, terms for it, stealing, extortion. Zacchaeus uh, made restitution fourfold for him extorting money because he was a tax collector, if you remember in the New Testament. Breaking and entering today, shoplifting, larcening, embezzlement. Stealing time, stealing time, stealing ideas, stealing people. The Bible addresses that in Genesis 40, verse number 15, kidnapping. In fact, it says, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is 
found in his possession, he surely shall be put to death. So for kidnapping, the penalty was death. But what about stealing God's property? What about stealing from God? Well, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Joshua. And I want you to notice in Joshua chapter 7, not only that he stole, but I want you to know again the progression of temptation. Remember that progression I mentioned last week that somebody sees with their eyes, they then desire it with their heart, and then they take it, right? Well, notice in Joshua chapter 7, verse 20 and 21. And of course, Achan was stealing God's property. Now, it, what's interesting here in Joshua is that God says, listen, when you go in and destroy all the people, then that booty from that, um, that warfare is mine. All, all that Achan had to do is wait for the next town, and it would have been his, because God in the next town gave it to the people. But this time he says, no, I want it. But notice what it says, Joshua 7, verse 20 and 21. It says, So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. Verse 21, When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So in that passage of Scripture, you see the progression. I saw, I coveted, I took. I took. Again, stealing from God brings consequences. In Achan's case, not only was he stoned to death and his goods burned, but his whole family, his wife and family, family were too because he took what was under the band what was God's possession he took and of course he suffered the consequences for that he stole from God of course here's a, a, a passage that I just want to look at screen Malachi chapter 3 verse number 8 and 9 it says will a man rob God yet you are robbing me but you say how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And then notice in verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Now, in that passage of Scripture, one of the things the people were doing were they were giving. Well, they weren't giving at all, and they weren't giving their best, and they weren't giving their first. They weren't doing that. And so they were saying, well, hey, what do you mean we haven't been giving? We've been giving. What do you mean we're robbing God? And God says, no, you are robbing me because you're not giving me the first and the best. You're giving me the chump change. You're not giving me what comes out of the first fruits of your labors. That's mine. See, we can be stealing from God when it even comes to that, uh, not giving God what it is his due in our own Christian life. You know, our time is not our own. Our bodies are not our own. We looked at that, saw that last week, right? Our life is not our own, right? We are actually slaves to a good master, and his name is Jesus Christ, 
right? But now we've been freed up by the Spirit of God to actually serve God with joy and with gladness and with the desire to want to see his name uplifted and glorified. And in doing that, we receive blessing from the Lord. So we can steal from God with our not giving him our time, not giving him the use of our spiritual gifts, not giving him our possessions in the sense of giving each week is part of worship. It's giving back to God what he's, what he's blessed us with. So stealing has other forms than theft and robbery. Uh, it could be the misuse of a trust fund. That could be fraud. Or it could be unfair wages. Like it says in James, Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you. In other words, somebody did the work and you don't want to pay them. That is also considered theft and robbery. Chain, scripture talks about in Exodus 22, uh, excessive interest. The people of God are warned that if you lend to people, it cannot be uh, used, uh, you cannot excessively impose upon them a high interest. Sometimes it's no interest at all. The best way to do it is if you're ever giving money is give it give money with no strings attached. You don't expect anything back. Then then you, if you don't expect anything back, I don't expect anything. I want to give this out of the goodness of my heart. I thought about it. This is yours. That's it. It's closed. Not coming back later and say, you know what, that money I gave you, I need it back. Uh, no, that's not the way we should do things. Also charging, I mean, uh, also using inaccurate measurements of weights and sizes and volumes. It was, there was a warning in Scripture that people were not to use uh, weights and measurements inaccurately. And I knew a guy who used to uh, visit the gas stations, and they would pull apart the pumps, and they would make sure that the gauges on the pumps were actually giving the right amount of gas for the right price. To everybody. I don't know if they still do that. They probably do it electronically now. But they can fix. They used to be able to fix things. So you thought you were getting this much. You know, it's like, you know, the old proverbial thing that you go to the butcher shop to get a pound of meat and the butcher has his thumb on the scale. You know what I mean? And uh, that's the kind of thing that goes on all the time. You don't, you don't know. You, you feel like sometimes when you go to buy something, you're getting taken. You know? Sometimes you're not, but sometimes you are. And we shouldn't be doing that as God's people. We should be up front. Uh, unpaid debts, uh, failing to pay to another that which is due, even credit cards, using credit cards where we, we are way over the top and not realizing that when you use that credit card, you should be thinking, if I don't have the cash to pay for this, I'm not going to use this card, right? You shouldn't be paying interest and finances charges on, that means you're not using your money right. That means there's something wrong. You need to see Khalif and get into the, the yam class on, on finances, and he'll set you straight, all right? Because he's learned all those lessons, and now he's able to teach them to those who are going to make the same mistakes, all right? Receiving stolen goods like pirated software, music, videos, mo movies, you know, even in the... Uh, uh, Ezekiel talks about robbing souls of truth, right? Not giving people the word of God and giving it out like you're, you're supposed to. So stealing also includes deception, covert planning for the opportunity to take 
what is not yours for yourself. It includes the misuse of intellectual ability, ingenuity, and skill, and gifts that God's given you himself to merely serve yourself and not serve the Lord and others. And usually coupled with the thought that when you've done that, you've gotten over on someone. So the thief has a strong desire to obtain things without the desire to work for it. He has a shortcut in mind. Uh, He may think it is easier to take from others who have worked for what they have than to go through all that hassle of working, those long hours for such little. I'll just take it. That's what's in his mind. So in the, in the end, the, the thief's view and understanding of work is twisted of its original shape into something thought as good to the thief, but in reality very pervert, perverted when you come to the word of God. Now, what are, what are some of the causes of theft? Well, in Psalm 78, a sinful heart of unbelief, a person who has a high distrust in God's providence. Like it says in Psalm 78, it says, Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath. Why was he full of wrath? This is in the wilderness where God supplied all the people, their food, the manna from heaven, their their clothes didn't wear out. He supplied them water in the wilderness. He made a, a road in the desert and a river, a river in the desert and a road in the wilderness. God did that. And yet it says in Scripture, because they did not believe in God and did not trust him to, in, for his salvation. So, so unbelief in God's providence could be that we do not trust God, that he will provide, so we have to scheme to get on our own get something on our own because we don't believe God will supply. Also, a a sinful heart of covetousness. I'm going to cover this in the Tenth Commandment because the Tenth Commandment is a very interesting commandment. The the, the term covetousness really signifies an uh, immoderate desire of getting something, which is at the root of all theft. A person covets more than what has been given them. So the person takes it from another, schemes to take from another. And then just downright greed. Greed is prevalent in Scripture in all kinds of ways, like in Proverbs 15, verse 17. Notice what it says He who profits illicitly, the old uh, King James says, He who is greedy. So, The New American Standard says, he who profits illicitly troubles his own house. But notice the next part. But he who hates bribes will live. So greed, and then this passage of Scripture is is so convicting in Timothy, where Paul is telling young Timothy uh, this about people who love money. But notice what it says. It says, those who want to get rich. What's interesting there is it doesn't mean they ever will, but they want to, and I've known people who have all their life wanted to get rich and never did. And when you look in their car, all their, where they sit, is all filled with old lottery tickets. Because they always wished to, you know, hit that jackpot, 
whatever they call it. What do they call it? Uh, you know, you know, they hit the big one. And and uh, and yet, if you look at the rest of the passages, they they fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. First, verse ten says, "For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil." And some, by longing for it, there's that desire for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See these get-rich-quick schemes, these Ponzi pyramid insurance schemes, you know, lottery and gambling, all those things are all prevalent in our society, and they are many times the temptation to just fulfill that desire to want more than you should have or God intended to give you. And, of course, there's external causes to uh, thievery. It would be just the world system itself. The Bible says in uh, Ephesians 4 that the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. And then it says, and practice every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ this way, Paul says in Ephesians. And then Satan's solicitations. You find that Satan can use wealth to tempt us. An ideal a uh, person is tempted by the devil to take what is not hid. So Satan uh, wants to actually rob us of our innocence in this area. We find Judas, right? When Judas, it says Satan entered into him, he was the person who took care of the money bag, right? And he loved money than he, than, uh, more than he loved Christ. And then, of course, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, where they... Gave, they wanted to mimic what Barnabas was doing, and so they gave land, but they only gave part of it. Barnabas gave all of it, and that's why it says in Scripture in the book of Acts, and Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? So see, these are areas in which you and I are, uh, there's internal causes, our own sinful heart, there's external causes that could bring someone to be tempted to be a thief. And there's many examples in Scripture about thievery. Rachel stole her father's idols. Somehow I looked at that and I said, maybe that's not a bad thing, you know, to steal his idols. And, but she never told her husband, Jacob, because Jacob says, I did not know Rachel stole, stole them. And... Uh, but she stole the idols, and then Joseph's brothers were concerned that they would be accused of stealing uh, Joseph's silver cup. And, of course, remember, the silver cup ended up in Benjamin's bag, right? And, and of course, he got taken in, and a, the big ordeal, God teaching a big lesson to the brothers for selling Joseph into slavery. And then, of course, we already saw that Achan stole items that were devoted uh, to God. And then Ahab and Jezebel stole Naboth's vineyard. Uh, in Judges, Micah stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his own mother, but then gave it back to her. And then, of course, David, remember when David sinned with Bathsheba and uh, killed Uriah, her husband, and Nathan came to him and told the story about someone robbing someone's little lamb? Remember that? Well, remember the parable of stealing the poor family's pet, sheep, and then Nathan, I mean, 
Nathan the prophet said to David, David, you're the man who did that. You, you're the one who stole. So, so not only was it adultery, it was murder, it was also thievery that David was uh, guilty of. He should have been put to death, but God forgave him. See, there is, there's the intersection of the mercy of God in the midst of sin that you cannot rescue yourself from unless God intervenes. And then, of course, the varied penalties for theft, death, double payment, fourfold payment. The judges would, make, would decide what restitution needs to be done. If, if you didn't have anything to give, you would be sold into slavery. In other cultures, prison, they used to have debtor's prison where a person would be put in prison because they didn't pay their debt or they would be sent to jail, or some places like in the Middle East, cut off your ears, cut off your nose, cut off your hands. You stole, bloom, that's it. Tell me that won't prevent you stealing again, right? But that's what they do in other places. Now, you don't have that kind of level of uh, penalties for stealing in the Old Testament. Uh, Death came only if you stole someone or you stole from God. Then death would come, but other things is really... Payment, restitution, giving back. But you, you gave back a twofold, fourfold, because the thief had to feel the penalty, the weight of what he took from somebody else, usually twice fold and fourfold. So that brings me to this morning to the New Testament, the principle uh, in the Eighth Commandment related to life today. Now let's take our Bibles and turn to this passage of Scripture, just one section of Scripture. Remember, this is in light of uh, the Apostle Paul teaching about the Holy Spirit, right? So carrying out these things because you have the Holy Spirit, you are a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells you, now I can actually overcome this sin of stealing, right, by living in the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4 Verse number 28. Now, in other words, if you, if you were in the habit of stealing things, steal no more. Now in Christ, if you are in Christ, become an honest workman. And you notice that in the passage of Scripture, it says this, he who steals, Ephesians 4, 28, he who steals must steal no longer. Now, that is assuming that a person is a believer and has the Spirit of God to be able to actually put this into practice. So if, on the other hand, thievery continues, if there is no change, then it just shows the person has not yet matured spiritually or is not a Christian at all. However, let it be known that this Epistle is written to believers who are being progressively sanctified. Believers are called to walk in holiness, meaning they are not practically made perfect yet. They will never be made perfect on this side of eternity, but they are growing in maturity. Some sins were quickly, we were quickly delivered from when we became believers, but the others, we need instruction from the Word of God so that we understand in our thrashing about against sin that 
the struggle is not immediately over. Matter of fact, no matter how long you will be a believer, you're always going to be struggling against some sin. As you mature, you see your sin more clearly. As you mature in Christ Jesus, you see your thoughts as being sinful. That's the root, all right? You don't want to you don't want the fruit to get to the branches. You want to take care of the root. That's where you want to kill it. And so the Spirit of God shows you the things that you're thinking are not honoring to the Lord. So we are going to go on struggling with remaining sin. We are going to be tempted to sin, tempted by past sins and enticed to sin even in present situations. So what the Word of God is doing is instructing us to stop stealing. So Scripture is informing us that we have the Holy Spirit, we have His power, and He is at presently at work in us to will and to do of God's good pleasure. So we are not struggling in our sin against our sin alone. We are not fighting against our sin alone. We are part of the body of believers who are being made strong in order that we will live for God in this world and imitate the character of God. So the character of God here is that we would not steal. But what is interesting, and why kind of split the passage in half, is this, that the second part of it is the solution to the thievery. And look what it says in verse 28, right? In the insistence in our passages upon honest work but urges one to labor so diligently that he may have some surplus which, 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 which uh, to relieve his fellow brother or sister who's in need. Look what it says in the middle of the verse, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what, what is good. That means it has to be honest, good labor, not illegal labor so that you will have something to share with one who has need. So that's what it says in the second part of the passage. So the theft, or theft in, in all its forms, misappropriates to one's own use the results of labor, which belong to another. Thus, by way of contrast, the highest motive for Patient and humble toil is the desire thereby to acquire the power to relieve those who are in distress. The supreme inspiration in labor is not personal gain, but it's sympathetic service to others. It's worship to God. In other words, our passage doesn't say become an honest workman so that you may support yourself. That's assumed. It really says, become an honest workman so that you may have something to give away to those who are poorer than yourself, those who are in need other than yourself. So it's always, again, dying to self here when it comes to our money and our finances. If a person has need, I see that need, and I have compassion on them. Compassion sees and supplies. If God did not have compassion on us, if he didn't see us in our need, he would never supplied but his compassion sees and provides. It's the same here, that we see what we need to do, and then we work in order to give. 
We work in order to give. The Christian ideal is that we work not to amass things, but to be able, if need be, to give them away. That's a pretty odd uh, kind of way of thinking. That's not the way of thinking. Uh, pretty much in America, in, in this system that we live in. So then for the Christian... The stealing which takes from others to give to oneself must be replaced by hard work, which takes from self and gives to others. Selfishness is thus replaced by unselfishness in a very, very practical way. So, in other words, the solution for hedging against the temptation to steal is to work. To work to put your hands to good use and good labor for what motive? So I have enough to take care of myself and I have enough to give to somebody else, to give to the Lord's work, right? I have enough to do that without strapping me, all right? So I'm learning how to use finances in a way that I am freed up to do that. Now, a lot of things could take place for that to happen in some, some of your lives, right? You may have to adjust. Uh, take care of things. But, you know, when people say, well, I can't afford to give, you can't afford not to give. That's, that's the way it ought to be. That's a cliche, I know that. But the thing is that it's true, all right? I can't afford not to give to God because why? God, God is the greatest giver in Scripture. In other words, when we give, we are acting like God. We are exemplifying the character of God through the Spirit of God out of our lives to other people. We're not, a, we're not taking, we don't have to take, we can give. And when we give, then we are acting like God. In fact, uh, it's Timothy who told Paul, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on uncertain riches, but on God who richly supplies and gives us, gives to us all things to what? Enjoy. So God wants to give to us so we can be happy. So we can be content. So we don't have to be looking to the left or to the right or to you know our neighbors to see, hey, look, they have that. Maybe we should get that. No, we don't have to be looking like that. We could just be content. Yeah, if God blessed somebody else better than me, God blessed them. God didn't bless me like that. That's all right. Just be content. All right, that's the, that's the motive the Spirit of God gives Christians. And when we do that, and we are able to handle our own finances and our own property the way we should, then God gets the glory. And remember, God is the giver. He gave his Son and did not withhold his Son. He gave his Spirit. He gave life to us. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. He gives us spiritual understanding. The Gospel of John tells us that we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. He gives us the gift of faith. He gives us the gift of grace. But each one of us, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, for the thief not to consider these gifts and the blessings they bring is to treat with disdain 
what God has given to us. See, God doesn't make us stingy. He opens our hands and makes us givers. That's what he does. That's his nature. He does that to us. He expects his children to do the same thing. So, saying all that and looking at considering this this commandment, uh, what is to be done to be avoiding this, uh, avoiding, just avoiding stealing, avoiding this particular conduct? Well, some simple things, but it's, they're, they're true. Live as those who have been called to be in Christ. The passage of Scripture we just looked at in Ephesians 4.28, he who steals, steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with him who has need. Live as a person who is in Christ, and that's what a person in Christ does. Secondly, keep in mind the shortness of life and what one departs with from this world, right? What do you, what do you depart with? Well, listen to what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse, and verse 6 and 7, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied with contentment, for we have brought nothing in to this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. So when you leave, you're not bringing the U-Haul with you, all right? You're leaving alone, all right? You're leaving, that's it, you're leaving, right? So consider that. We don't take anything with us. So everything God's given you is for now, this side of eternity. Use it well, don't hoard it, all right? Be wise with it, but be able to freely give when called upon. And then uh, some other ones would be this. Um, keep in mind the instability and unpredictability of wealth. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 4 and 5 says, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from considering it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. Boy, is that true. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heaven. You know what? It goes in one pocket and it goes out the next, right? I sit there and I do my bills and I'm saying, you know, do I have to pay this bill? Yeah, I got to pay this bill. Do I have to pay this bill? Yeah, I got to pay that bill. And I write out those. I still write out checks. I know the millennial generation don't write checks anymore, but uh, I write a check. I want. I, I don't write all my checks out now because I am kind of like splitting it in half. You know, half electronic, half right. Some some things I have to know I paid. You know, and I copy it and file it. I anyway. <laughs> you probably do the same thing, but we should have some kind of filing system, right? At least when the bill. I pay that bill. Oh man, I don't know if I paid that bill. You know. See, when the electric goes out, you know, and, you know, we don't have any more internet, I'll still have my bills paid, and you won't. <laughs> See, that's the way I think. All right, I, I, want, I want to write out paper stuff, you know. And then, of course, the next one would be this. Be content with the estate that God has given you. Remember, godliness with contentment is great gain. To me... That is probably where the, the hardest part of Christian growth is the Spirit of God getting us to this point, that we are just content. That means we're not complaining, we're not grumbling, we're not murmuring under our breath about our situation. We are thankful. 
and we are we are we know we're being blessed by God and that God has his hand of protection upon us and he's given us way more than we deserve. See, that's in our mind when we think of this particular subject. Be content with the estate that God has given you. What does it say in this passage, 1 Timothy 6, 8? If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. In other words, you know what God promised you? He promised you food to eat, clothing on your back, housing, and work. That's it. He didn't promise you to be healthy, wealthy, and fine. He's never promised that. Now, he does allow people, some people to have wealth, but the warning for a wealthy person is pretty high, right? that if you have that kind of wealth, you better be using your money in a way that honors him if you're a believer. So there's, there's a great emphasis put upon that. And I like what it says in, in uh Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. It's amazing that that's in that passage, right? Because when we don't, when we're not content, we're thinking God's not with me, he deserted me, and he's not taking care of my needs. That's what we think. That's the temptation right there. So the temptation is don't go there. Be content. I don't have all the answers why I'm in the situation I'm in. I may never get all the answers about, about the situation I'm in, but I'm going to be content in the situation I'm in because I know God will never leave me or forsake me, and his providence I can trust, even though I don't see clearly. All right? So you and I are going to be in that situation a lot of times. All right? But you know what? God's not going to take a left turn on us. You can just keep following and trusting him because he will always be faithful to his kids. Always. Satan don't want you to believe that. He doesn't. And then, of course, just, just this one right here. Just trust in God, not money. It says in Psalm 62.10, Do not trust in oppression and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. See, don't trust in what money can do. Trust in what God can do and will do. And a lot of times we get to the place where we have a little bit more, then we start trusting in what it can do. You know, all that that means is that God's given you a little bit more. So now, how am I going to use it in the right way? See, that's how we should be thinking. And then, of course, one last thing is this: just this. Send your treasure on ahead. Send it on ahead. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But what? But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, that's what we need to do. Live for the Lord. Our greatest treasure is going to be when we get to heaven because we're going to have as our possession, God himself. I don't understand all that. I can't wrap my, my, my mind around that, but I know the scripture is true and tells us that, right? We are going to be co-labor or co- uh, I can't find the word right now. Her, heirs together. There we go. Thank you very much. Heirs together with Christ. See? We're, we're gonna, that's, that's the promise in scripture, right? That's the promise. We're going to be heirs together with Christ. Thank you for that.
right? Leaky. It's, it's getting leaky as you get older. You know what I mean? <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, uh, this morning, Lord, thank you for the wonderful knowledge that you give us how great a God you are, how great a giver you are. Lord, you give good gifts to your children. And you withhold things that we think are good and are not. Thank you, Lord, for that. When we work honest with our own hands, we are acting like you. And when we work like that and we use our uh, possessions and our finances in a way that we can not only take care of our own needs and bills, but we can also have leftover to give. Lord, that's what you want us to do. And in doing that, we are going to hedge against the temptation to steal. For we know, Lord, that never honors you. And so help us to do that, Lord. Uh, and help us to overcome and put to death this, this particular sin and its temptation so we can live for you in a way that honors you. That being Christian is being renewed in the image of our creator and after God's likeness. And so I pray, Lord, that as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit of God, we would exemplify this character of being honest, hard workers, and people who know how to handle what we have to the glory of God. And I pray this in Christ's precious and most holy name. Amen. Okay, this morning we do have our Lord's table. So I do want to mention that if uh, we believe, I, we believe here in our church of close communion, and close communion means that if you are visiting and you have been, uh, you are a Christian, have been repented of your sin, believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and have been have walked in the waters of baptism and have been baptized as a believer, then you can participate with us this morning in our Lord's table. And so the Lord's table uh, is a ordinance that God's given to the church, where the bread represents the body of Christ, and the fruit of the vine represents the blood of Christ, and we're able to, and the reason why it's called the Lord's table is because it's to be pictured in our mind as a table where we're sitting down, no longer enemies of God, and put our legs underneath the table, and uh, or leaning on each other around the table like they did, the disciples did, and saying that I belong here, uh, and I have peace with God because of the blood of Christ. See, that's the image that we should have when we partake of the Lord's table. And remember, it's a time for self-examination. That's some of the beneficial effects of the Lord's table. We are to examine ourselves before we come so we can partake of the Lord's table. It's never to let our sin linger on and then we decide not to take